Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation home owning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com biggerpockets. Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer, joined today by James Daynard. James, what is going on, man? Oh, doing well. Just uh, just grinding through this market right now. We are in rapid wrap things up. It has definitely been transitioning pretty aggressively in the last four to six weeks. Well, as we're going to hear from our guest today, who is incredible, the guest today is uh, Chris Doritis, who is the Deputy Chief Economist at Moody's Analytics. He specializes in assessing the economy's impact on household financing, housing, credit markets, and public policy. He's an incredible guest. We had an amazing uh, discussion. He talked about, you know, uh, you know, spoiler alert, he thinks markets are going down <laughs> over the next couple years, and he's going to uh, explain that in more detail. But with that information, um, maybe do you have a quick tip for anyone listening to this on how to keep investing and, you know, keep improving your financial position in a market that is uh, potentially declining in the next year? Yeah, it's, it's all about just proper underwriting and buying right right now and just mitigating risk. Uh, I think the biggest thing that we've been doing and we've been talking to our clients about is just not rushing into that deal really running your core metrics numbers, putting some padding in your performa, putting some padding in whatever your exit plan is. And you know, like what we're doing or like my favorite strategy in 2008 to 12 was I just ran everything. So worst case, as long as I knew I would break even no matter what on the deal, we would buy it. So just be super conservative on the numbers. Uh, we are seeing extremely good buys right now on the multifamily sector, se- uh, sector, though. Like, I mean, we are 
getting pricing I haven't seen in a while. And so just really look for where the actual opportunities are. And if you were doing something the last 24 months, you might want to switch it up and look at a, in, in a different investment platform at this time. Awesome. That's great advice. Yeah. Everyone listening to this, I mean, that's what this show is about is right. There's always opportunity. You just have to adjust your strategy to the market conditions. And uh, I think you're going to learn a lot from this episode. I, I loved this episode. This was uh, really helpful. Um, we're finally, you know, we're talking to someone who really does economic forecasting and modeling and has, I think, a very sound understanding of what's going to happen in the housing market, not just in the next two years, which is important, but over the next 10 or 20 years, which is perhaps even more important for real estate investors who are trying to build a long-term strategy, trying to find that financial freedom. Um, so definitely stick around for this. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, but then we'll be back with Chris DeRitis from Moody's Analytics. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. All right, let's welcome Chris Doritas, who is the Deputy Chief Economist at Moody's Analytics to On the Market. Chris, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Well, James and I have been uh, nerding out about some of your economic studies, and we'll get into some of the Moody's forecasts for the next few years. Um, but first, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at Moody's? Sure. So I am the uh, Deputy Chief Economist at uh, Moody's Analytics. That's uh, distinct from the uh, rating agency that uh, most people think of when they think Moody's. We have a, a different division that focuses just on uh, risk analysis, and in particular, my group focuses on economics and economic scenarios. So we do a lot of forecasting um, across the United States. We look at a lot of local markets as well as uh, international uh, forecasting as well. So we're constantly looking at the data, trying to figure out where um, economies are headed, and uh, hopefully providing some guidance that, uh, that leads to better or more useful decision making. Well, we're, we're super excited to have you. We do a lot of uh, speculating on this show where we, we read a lot and I think we're all pretty informed about what's going on in the housing market, but none of us actually maintain for, you know, economic models or do our own forecasting. So we're, we're really excited to have you on and talk about um, what you all see happening in the short term and Perhaps more importantly, as we were just discussing before we started, the long-term uh, trends in the housing market. So before we pin you down and ask you what you think will happen next year, can you just tell us a little bit about sort of the variables? Like, what are the factors that you're looking at that impact the forecasting you're doing for the housing market, at least over the next few years? So uh, forecasting housing is like forecasting any other asset. We look at both supply and demand. On the supply side, we're looking at the factors that impact uh, builders' ability to build homes, right? So construction costs, how much are building materials, lumber prices have been a big issue throughout the pandemic, for example. Uh, wages of construction workers and even availability of construction workers is, is an issue when it comes to uh, building homes. And perhaps more than anything right now, the builders tell us that it's zoning restrictions and other regulations that they face, which really limits their ability to uh, find buildable lots and, and uh, put up housing. 
And then on the demand side, we're, uh, we're certainly looking at the uh, cost to borrow. That's the major uh, factor impacting uh, home buyers. Most, uh, most homes are still financed uh, in, in the U.S. So as interest rates go up, demand come, comes down. We're seeing demand come way down, uh, of course, as affordability gets impacted. So those are just some of the, um, the factors that we're looking at. Um, household formations, right? So how many households are actually being added uh, to the population, well, that's a, a direct uh, corollary or highly correlated with with demand, right? You have more households coming in, you have more immigration or higher birth rates. Um, that's going to impact the demand for housing that we need in the country. Aging of the population might impact how many second homes or vacation homes people want as well. So there are a number of factors that we're looking at, but it helps to really break it down into that supply and demand uh, side of the equation. And, and then from there, we can try to uh, estimate what a, uh, an equilibrium level of housing might be and where we're where we are today relative to that equilibrium. Now I've seen there's been a lot in the media coverage of, of Moody's forecasts and uh, it seems I'll just summarize and let you do the do the detailed analysis but I've seen that uh, on a large on a national scale Moody's is predicting year-over-year price declines in 2023. Can you tell us a little bit more of the details about those predictions? Uh, sure. So we ha we run models, as I mentioned, that look at those supply and demand factors, and we are uh, estimating what the equilibrium or trend uh, house house housing value should be. What is, what should house prices be if we just considered incomes or rents and look at historic ratios between prices and, and incomes? So that is a, a core or fundamental basis of, of our model. That uh, then defines what uh, what the fundamental value is, and we compare that to what values we are currently observing in in the housing market. And right now, uh, during or during the pandemic, we saw a tremendous run up in home prices, about forty percent increase from the beginning of twenty twenty till today. That far outstrips what incomes did during that time. Although we've had some nice income growth, it's nowhere near forty uh, percent. So as a result. We, our calculation leads to the conclusion that uh, most uh, housing markets across the country are indeed overvalued. So of the 400 plus metropolitan areas that we have in the country, we have we state that about 80% of them have, are above uh, their fundamental value. Now, there's some measurement error in the in the models, as we know, and we get, well, you said you, you're a data nerd, so you know there's a lot of volatility in, in the data. So you don't want to, uh, get uh, overly excited by a market that's only one or two percent uh, overvalued, right? So you want some threshold or some cutoff that really sticks out. So we tend to look at those markets that are more than 20 percent overvalued as being ones that we might be particularly concerned with, and then we rank order uh, the um, the markets to see which which of these uh, metropolitan areas we particularly want to be focused on. And when we do that, what we find is that uh, many of the markets in the south, and particularly in the Mountain West. Had, did experience very sharp rises in uh, home prices relative uh, to their incomes. And those would be the ones that are most vulnerable to a double digit uh, type of uh, correction here. So we're thinking about uh, a Boise, Idaho, Phoenix, Arizona, Austin, Texas, or some of the major markets. But then uh, particularly concerning to me are some of the second tier or third tier markets as well that might be sitting next to major metropolitan areas that also saw a big run up in prices. And my concern there is that as things turn, they, they might start to weaken. 
Uh, so, Chris, what you you were just talking about, and, and I was kind of reading online as well. Like, uh, so Moody has predicted kind of like some decline in the market, about five to ten percent over the next twelve to twenty four months. But like, what you were just describing to me is like the perfect mixture of what also could be a disaster, and uh, you know, where cost of housing going up by forty percent. Uh, cost of money now up about 40% on the mortgage cost. And then salaries just haven't quite kept up with that pace. Like I know, like even in the expensive markets, like our tech buyers or our tech markets, you know, we saw salaries increase like 15 to 20%. They made a lot more money on their stock growth than they did anything else, which is now also down. And, you know, so it kind of is looking like this perfect mixture of what also could be a disaster as well, not just a five to 10% pullback, but it, it could rapidly bring pricing down. Why are you guys predicting more of like a conservative drop rather than a rapid with all these things going on? Yeah, great question. Uh, parallels to the uh, housing crash at, in the late 2000s are obvious. So what's different this time are really two uh, key factors. One is demographics, right? So back in the housing crash of 2006, 2009, we had uh, a small Gen X population turning 30 or in their early 30s, prime age for home buying. At the same time, we were building over 2 million units, um, new housing units per year. So we had the supply demand imbalance there. You had a lot of flipping and speculation going on. Today, we don't have that. We have actually the reverse. We have a very large millennial population that is looking for housing. We have a, a housing deficit in this country because we haven't been building over the last decade. By our calculations, there we're uh, about 1.5 million housing units short of where we should be. That's on top of just what we should be building each year to keep up with uh, population growth. Um, so you have you have that uh, underlying demand out there. You have the lack of uh, supply. So the, the demographics are actually more favorable today. So even as prices start to come down, our expectation is you will have buyers stepping up as prices come back into a, a more reasonable zone. You're right that the the interest rates are a, a a big weight in terms of affordability, right? So that is the that is the reason why we do expect to see house prices come down, housing demand coming down uh, over the next uh, couple of years to begin with. But to really cause more of that snowball effect you're referring to, you'd really need to have um, labor market uh, declines, right? So higher unemployment, people actually losing jobs, losing their incomes, and uh, unable to make uh, their mortgage payments. The other key difference, of course, today is that the lending standards for mortgages have been much, much stronger than they were back in 06 and 09, right? Back then, we had very loose lending. People didn't have to put a, a whole lot of money down. Uh, on their properties today, home buyers are much more qualified. They don't have these crazy option arms or negatively amortizing uh, arms, um, or adjustable rate mortgages, uh, and they have much more equity in their homes. So even as prices coming down, most home buyers are still going to be in a in a in a positive equity situation. And the fact that they have been able to lock in very low interest rates, record low interest rates over the last couple of years, means that they are more likely to fight for their homes, right? They're not going to let those homes go quite uh, so easily into foreclosure, right? They're, they're going to do what they can to a, avoid a, a default because the consequence is going back into the market and then facing a much higher interest rate, facing much higher rent uh, prices as well. So for those reasons, I expect the, to see the um, the market cooling here. We, live, we allow uh, time for the market to catch up in terms of incomes and rebalance uh, uh, the um, price to rent or price to income ratios. Yeah, Chris, I, I saw something the other day, just to reiterate one of your points, and all those are 
very helpful. Thank you. But just about the adjustable rate mortgages and how that sort of got us into a big part of the mess in 2008, that back then 40% of mortgages were adjustable rate, and now it's less than 2%. So like that just shows you the scale and difference of, of how lending standards have changed. Yeah. And even the adjustable rates we have uh, today, the adjustable rate mortgages are quite different than what we had back then, right? Today, we do have adjustable rate mortgages. You can get a 5-1 arm or 10-1 arm. Um, but even those have very limited uh, or more, more limited risk uh, than the uh, adjustable rate mortgages we had back then, which may have been adjusting every month or every six months, may have had negative, uh, negative equity. So uh, very different situation. Uh, okay. So I have this question I've been longing to ask someone, and it seems like you're the person for the job. So you said that the the basis of your model is that the you you derive sort of this intrinsic value in home prices based off uh income and home prices and and traditionally what people pay mm-hmm. that makes sense but in other countries like if you look at Canada or Australia or New Zealand over the last couple of years that dynamic has just fundamentally changed right like the the proportion that people are paying for their home out of their total income has gone up and up and up. And we're probably seeing corrections in those markets too. But I'm just curious, like, is there risk of that happening? Like, is there maybe a chance that the United States is heading in this way where people are just going to have to pay way more for housing um, than they have historically? Yeah, I I think it goes to uh, certainly the demographics and the demand side of the issue, right? So from my viewpoint, it, we do have this housing deficit. We have much more underlying demand than we have supply, right? So you, you see, you see, obviously see the homeowners and you see the renters out there and you get a sense of uh, the housing for market from, from those populations. And you can look at the home ownership rate to see uh, what, um, what that looks like in terms of are, able, are people able to buy homes? Are we seeing home ownership rates increase? What gets uh, unnoticed is that whole population of, uh, of uh, young adults in particular who are unable to access the housing market in any way. They're not able to rent because the rents are too high relative to their incomes. They're not able to buy because of the affordability issues. And so they're living with parents or they're living with roommates. And so they kind of fall out of our housing statistics. We don't really have visibility uh, into them. So at the moment, given the demographics, yes, I, I would agree with you that there's so much demand out there that uh, that is forcing uh, individuals who want to want to join the game, uh, want to start their own households uh, to face even higher uh, house prices because of the uh, of the supply issues. If you look uh, ahead, and I think we'll get to this a little bit later, uh, the demographics are, are uh, forecasted to change here, right? We have falling birth rates, immigration rates remain low. And so this dynamic could change very rapidly uh, as you go 10, 15, or 20 years out. So I don't expect to see these types of uh, constraints in terms of how much your, uh, households are spending on their, their housing costs to persist forever. I don't, think, uh, I don't think they can. I don't think that's sustainable. Um, so over time, it will uh, it will adjust as those other demographics adjust. But um, in the meantime, it, you know, you currently uh, you could certainly can have a, a bit of a uh, pressure on on those um, on those households and see that they're spending a lot on housing. It, well, yeah, because it's a, there's there's no other logic behind this that that you can come up with. Like if you look at certain parts like uh, Vancouver, Canada, it's just very expensive real estate, very expensive housing, and and 
you know, right now, like even with what we've seen in the market pullback, like we've seen about a 20% drop off of the peak peak pricing, not medium home, but like the highest comparables that we were seeing. And like I was even talking to Dave about this uh, earlier is that you would think it would have more impact with the cost of money. And it, like if the if the cost of money is up 40 percent, we've just seen this like I would almost think that the housing price would come back even further, like almost drop as fast as it appreciated over the last 24 months. And we're not seeing we're seeing a pullback. We're not seeing that kind of free fall. And that's where I'm like, yeah, we might just be in an expensive house, but like housing might just be a privilege going down the road. Like you're going to have to expend a lot of money and that's going to go into a lot of your, your, your earned income is going to be going towards housing costs. And it's, you know, but that's obviously not the healthiest housing, like economy in general. It's like, so how do you even fix that before it just goes off? Like, cause I think once it waterfalls over, it's going to be kind of stuck there for a while. Yeah, I I'd agree with that. So again, our forecast you know, does have the prices coming in, but basically going flat for the foreseeable future until incomes can get approach uh, the the type of uh, house to house price to income ratio that that we've had historically. Supply though is the real barrier here, right? The the obviously rates matter and higher costs to do um, restrict the opportunities for folks to actually purchase homes, but uh, without more supply of housing, right? The, this is going to persist, right? You're still going to have too few homes and too many people uh, looking for looking for housing. So that involves changing uh, zoning laws. It involves changing other regulations, right? Things that are very difficult um, to do because of the nimbyism or or the other trends that we've seen. Uh, another fact I can throw out there in terms of like a, a Vancouver market is also the um, the reduction now of uh, foreign home buyers, right? Uh, given the strength of the dollar in, in particular, you are seeing that foreign home buyers no longer find the U.S. or even Canada uh, particularly attractive um, for them to invest in. So that that could have that actually could have some beneficial effect for the the home buyer, the domestic home buyers who might be looking for, uh, looking to buy. So that could have some offsetting impact. But um, yeah, that that uh, is a delicate e- equation there in terms of how that uh, how that dynamic plays out over time. Yeah, Chris, I, I really want to get into that supply issue um, and some of the long-term things. But before we get off to sort of the short-term uh, forecast, you had mentioned sort of Mountain West uh, markets, Boise, Phoenix, you named a few. Yeah. Um, you know, are, what is sort of the downside uh, forecast for that? Like how bad do you think it could get in some of those markets? And then on the other side, are there any markets that you think will probably will, will keep growing even in this environment? Yeah, great question. So I, I think uh, 15, 20 percent uh, p- down from the peak. So peak was probably a, a second quarter of 2022 for most markets or maybe a little bit of variation there. Uh, but if you tell me Boise is going to be down uh, 15, 20 percent over the next couple of years, I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't uh, debate that. But that's off of a 40, 50 percent increase. Right. So for the homeowner who's been there a while, or the homeowner who tends to stay there a while, right? This isn't the this isn't catastrophe, right? This this is something they, uh, to a large extent, could uh, ride out. It's the buyer who bought recently, right? Bought at the peak. That's the one, of course, that's most at risk. Um, so there is there is the chance that things could snowball a bit, but uh, by and large, there's a lot of equity that folks have that we'd have a burn through until we really start to do damage to those markets. 
So this, the second question there um, was, uh, are there markets that are going to grow? I think it's, I think we saw some in like maybe the the Midwest or Northeast or um, do you think things or will maybe not even grow, but at least like be a little bit insulated from downside risk? Yeah, um, there certainly are markets that didn't experience quite the run up uh, that others uh, did in the Northeast and the Midwest. There was a lot of migration out of those areas into the South and, and to the, the Mountain West states that drove the prices up. So I, there are values uh, there. And certainly, again, for these uh, uh, millennials or younger homeowners or home buyers uh, looking for a place, there, there are more opportunities perhaps in some of those areas uh, than what they face in those more competitive uh, markets. And with remote work, right, being a, an option for more and more people that I would expect to see some stabilization in those markets, even uh, potentially some growth for the ones that that really didn't experience much of a, a rise during the uh, during the pandemic. So, is that how you guys kind of came up with most of those metrics? Was like you know, I saw like Albany, Georgia, uh, Columbus, Georgia, were like areas that you guys predicted would it actually have five percent growth in those markets. Was that in the the basis behind that is based on housing prices and income, right? Those are the two main factors that they're looking at. And because those markets didn't skyrocket in the second quarter, that's why you're kind of predicting more steady growth. Like the ones that basically didn't hockey stick up in that second quarter are the ones that are going to be the healthiest. Yeah, yeah. For the most part, there are some markets that actually did experience a lot of uh, price appreciation. Uh, that we don't have as uh, being at high risk because they maybe were dominated by individuals who brought a lot of wealth with them, right? So you did have folks moving out of the Northeast, accelerating their retirement from wealthier individuals moving to Naples, Florida, for example, and prices in Naples really did go up, uh, or Miami, they, they, up, uh, they went up a lot, but they also brought a lot of income with them or a lot of other wealth that might offset the risk that they would have to, or be forced to to sell in, in any type of downturn. So. You know, you want to be a little cautious to just uh, uh, jump on the markets that saw a lot of house price increase and assume that they're going to reverse. There are some other uh, factors out there that might offset those risks. All right. Well, that that's super helpful, Chris. Hopefully everyone listening to this appreciates that. It's a really, really good, informed analysis of what might happen in the market over the next couple, you know, year or two. But... We're real estate investing this is a long-term game for most people. Um, and we'd love to pick your brain about what's going on long-term. Um, I mean, you said it very succinctly and I loved it. You just basically said we need more supply. Like that's the problem with affordability in the United States. That seems to be causing a higher, maybe I'm wrong here, but it seems like there's a higher degree in pricing variance than like we've seen traditionally in the housing market. Um, can you just tell us a little bit more about the nature of the housing supply shortage in the U.S. Um, and then James and I will ask you a hundred more questions. Yeah, absolutely. So there's definitely a, a shortage, particularly at the lower end of the market. And we we do break out home prices in these different markets by tier, right? So we'll group um, each market into low, medium, high tiers by price in that market. And what we've seen is that prices have risen the fastest at the lower tier. There's lots of demand in, in that lower tier. People are looking for starter homes, uh, looking uh, for homes that they can then um, maybe uh, live in for a while and turn into investment properties, right? So there, there's a lot of demand in that in that uh, particular segment, much more than, than the available uh, supply. So prices have gone up across the board. I don't want to say that high tier markets or high tier uh, homes aren't rising as well. They just haven't risen as fast as, as the lower tier. And that's very um, much a, 
a, a consequence of the fact that you, you do have so many people looking to enter the, uh, the housing market. You do have uh, regional variation uh, as well. When we, when we think about the um, affordability of housing where people are wanting to live or choosing to live, right? So there is uh, quite a, var a variation in terms of uh, affordable housing in terms of the demand. And then on the supply side, Right there, there are certainly land constraints that will drive up uh, home prices as well and limit the amount of affordable housing that you might be able to build in like a San Francisco or in the Bay Area versus, you know, areas like a Dallas, which until recently at least have a lot of land uh, to build on, but now are actually facing constraints in terms of uh, travel time and uh, other uh, considerations that buyers uh, may have, right? If you have to commute to work still, uh, and you're living two, three hours away, all right, that's not going to work either. So it's not commuting, that's traveling. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's, that's sort of fascinating. So what you mentioned sort of at the top of the show that, you know, um, some of the, some of the issues that are contributing to this, but I'd love to, to talk about a few of them. One of them is this idea of nimbyism, which is, uh, not in my backyard, um, uh, what it stands for, uh, and is sort of this, phenomenon where people always speculate that they want more housing, but they don't want it built near them because that would add more supply in their neighborhood, or maybe they don't want multifamily units in a single family neighborhood, something like that. Can you just talk about that phenomenon and how that specific issue is contributing to the housing shortage? Yeah, it's pretty interesting, right? What I find particularly interesting is that it seems to cut across the political divide, right? Uh, you ask uh, folks on the left, do you want more, more housing? Of course, we want more housing. Housing is, uh, is a right. Everyone needs a place to live. We want more housing. Okay, uh, how about we, we build it? There's a nice lot not too far away from you. Uh, we'd like to put a multifamily complex there. We need to achieve density, right? That's one of the ways we can lower housing costs as well or build up a lot of housing units in a short period of time. Oh, whoa, whoa, wait, wait. Well, no, there's traffic congestion issues or, you know, there's a million different reasons why we want more housing, but we don't want it uh, near us. And the same, um, the same uh, kind of uh, talk does apply on the, on the right as well. People are, um, the, the arguments typically given over on that side are, well, you know, everyone should have a right to do with their property what they wish. So there's um, property rights issues. And yet then uh, there's still this concern about traffic and congestion. Oh, well, maybe we do need some zoning and restricting things. So it's a, it's it's very difficult um, when we have local control of communities that are deciding on their um, their own zoning laws to then uh, impose or, or uh, change the system, right? There are ingrained interests, right? If you're already in the club, if you're already a homeowner, right, it is in your interest in some sense to keep restricting the supply, right? That does drive the, the price of your individual property upward. So that's a, it's a difficult, uh, it's a very difficult situation to, to get around. There are a few states now that are challenging or have introduced some relaxation on zoning and that will help. Um, but those, even those will take some, some time. And even though you might have the right to um, build multiple units on your uh, property uh, today in, in some jurisdictions, it's still maybe difficult to actually uh, execute on that, um, on that option in a, in a cost-effective way. So it's not a, a short-term solution, it's, it is part of the solution, but it's not something that gets us there uh, rapidly. Yeah, and that's actually been a struggle for us in the local Seattle market is, you know, we had a lot of upzoning over the last 24 to 36 months where they 
they actually allow you to expedite your permits to put in affordable housing or detached ADUs and DADUs. And what they've gone it, with the zoning, they've they've they they want no more McMansions. They don't want they they actually shrunk the far ratio, the floor air uh, floor air ratio coverage or floor area ratio coverage. And they've done that because they don't want these big houses getting built and they want a bunch of smaller properties in if more affordable housing. But the main issue is the cost to build is extremely expensive because the units are so small and you still have kitchens, you still have bathrooms and the core cost. And so there was this big fad of these things getting built throughout all of Seattle for an 18 month period. And now the brakes have been hit because the cost, that's the problem is they've upzoned it, but they haven't thought of it all the way through because the replacement cost is still so high. You can't really make it work right now in today's markets with the current rates and the current pricing. And and so we actually did see this oversupply, and we have seen a little bit of pushback. A lot of the pe- people in Seattle, they wanted the affordable housing, but now with all these little detached ADUs throughout, it is you know it does affect the neighborhood profile. It affects how the neighborhood feels in, in the character, and then the the parking in the traffic is an issue. And uh, you know these are things that I think it, like it was working well for in some markets for like a two year period. Now it's like here here's this pause. We need to rethink a couple things through, um, and, and mostly I think that that inventory is going to stay lower though, just because the cost to build is too high. Like it, it, it was costing us like we build townhomes in Seattle for around three hundred dollars a foot, start to finish, and the the ADUs and the DADUs or the cottages that you could build were costing us nearly four hundred dollars a foot because they're just so small. And so why would you build them at that point? It just didn't make any mathematical sense. And, and then that's caused the dirt to come down quite a bit over the last two months. But it's like they've, they've, they've started to figure out the affordable housing, but they haven't made it. It's like they haven't figured out how to make it affordable. So it's just the pricing so high on these things. It didn't fix the issue. And it's like I think the only way to really fix it is, to, to be honest, the government's probably going to have to subsidize building costs a little bit on those. If they really want affordable housing, they're going to have to keep that number down because it's causing pricing to be up 20 percent across the board. Yeah, I, I think. Uh, well, I, one problem in housing in general is just the haphazard nature of the rules and regulations. Right. It's not that we plan these things in a very systematic or well thought out way. It's we're reacting. Right. We make a change here. We don't fully think through all the the consequences. Maybe we can get um, there is a fad or a trend that uh, that starts in one area, but now all of a sudden we do have congestion and you know all these uh, concerns of of the NIMBYs are do have some legitimacy. Um, so how do we uh, think through those in a more constructive uh, manner? And and you're right, the the builders you know, they they have a profit motive obviously. So um, even to the extent that they want to build more affordable and they're on board with the building more uh, affordable housing. Uh, they they face challenges when it comes to building costs, availability of labor. So, it's a shifting market um, from that perspective as well. So, yeah, and going to your point, the inefficiencies of the city, the debt cost is actually one of the worst costs of the whole thing because it takes so long to get permits with the pandemic and supply chain. I mean, you know, labor shortages, plans, permits, everything take. 30% longer than it used to. And so the debt cost too is kind of, it's so unless they can figure out how to build that faster and cheaper, it's not like a solution that's really working in today's market. Yeah, I, I would think that a, um, a shorter term play could be uh, to focus a bit more on the all the vacant housing that is out there. Now that's also tends to be scared. There's a lot of, va- there are millions of vacant homes that are not used even seasonally or occasionally. They're just in need of repair. They 
they need some um, attention to be brought into active use, but they do tend to be scattered, right? So kind of along the same lines of, okay, it's great, we can build um, accessory dwelling units, but that's not the same as uh, open tract uh, development, right? The, the costs are, 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 are much higher because they're one-offs, right? It's one, one unit here, one unit there. So there is an opportunity in, I think, to rehabilitate vacant homes um, and bring them uh, online a bit uh, faster because they don't have all those uh, permitting restrictions. The home already exists, right? It just needs to, uh, to, be, um, to be fixed up. But I, I think that only happens with some type of uh, support to, to kickstart um, the process as well. An individual you know, is going to face a lot of challenges if they want to fix up their home, bring it back in the market. They may not be able to capture the full uh, value in terms of the market rent until all the other properties around them are also kind of uh, reaching the same level of, uh, of amenities or, or building quality. So there can, I think you do need to, to see some um, uh, government support uh, out there to provide the incentives for the builders to either fix homes or build new homes and provide that ex uh, additional housing. So I think there are other solutions we can come up uh, with here beyond just trying to find another place to to build and facing all the permitting and, and regulations that you mentioned. Are there any other solutions? I know you're not a you're not a politician or you're and or a policy uh, firm necessarily, but are there any other uh, you know proposals or ideas that you think could help alleviate building costs and bring more supply online? Well, now there's this whole idea of uh, office conversions, right? So now we have another imbalance caused by the pandemic. Retail and office, we have too much retail space, too much office space should be re uh, converting that. That's, I think, uh, a lot of uh, analysts say, oh, it's obvious, right? It, it seems like a coincidence of once, right? You have these empty office buildings that are getting underutilized and you still have a lot of need for housing, right? Why not just convert them over? Right, and that's a, that's a promising um, solution, but as we as we know, as we, when we talk to builders, it's it's not that easy, right? The the footprints of, of uh, buildings are, are quite different. The location of buildings might be, uh, location of office buildings may not be zoned for residential, so you have a, 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 again some regulatory or zoning issues. So these, um, I, I think there is opportunity uh, there to do some of these conversions, but that again is going to be a um, a slow process, right? It probably needs to happen, right? We don't want empty buildings sitting uh, vacant all over the place. So there is economic value uh, to them. Uh, but no, I don't see any quick fix. And a lot of the proposals that have been put forward really are uh, focused on the demand side, right? They're looking to uh, bring down the cost of financing. And that's all good, provide more opportunity, open up the credit box, that's that's good. We, we need to focus on those opportunities as well. But until we fix the supply issue, um, I don't see that uh, will we'll really uh, address the uh, the needs of all the people who want to start homes or start households and, and, and buy homes. Yes, I'm, I'm so glad you said that because I agree like short term demand side alleviation can help um, and like people need housing, you know, like, I, I you know, the, we need short term stuff, but the only solution is more supply. Like, I just don't understand how. Um, it seems like not even like in the either side political discourse, like people are talking about long-term housing issues and how it's going to be addressed over 10 or 20 years. Well, so that gets to the long-term, right? If you look beyond the next 10, uh, so the next 10 years are going to continue to be a uh, struggle because you do have this millennial population that 
is the largest generation in their early 30s, right? Looking to buy homes. They're delaying those home purchases because they can't afford it, but they're going to continue to to want to purchase homes over, over this period. At some point, they will start to age out, right? At the same time, we have baby boomers, their uh, parents, who at the moment are choosing to age in place and may even have two, three properties, a vacational, maybe investment home, uh, property as well. So they're, they're actually soaking up some of the demand uh, for housing as well. Well, eventually they're gonna be downsizing as well, right? Either by choice or as they move on, right? Then you're gonna have more supply coming online uh, uh, from them. So we, it is, um, there is a potential here for the reverse problem uh, to occur in terms of uh, under, uh, uh, oversupply of housing, I should say, um, say 20 years from now. So as the population uh, ages, as the birth rates come down, if we don't change our immigration policies, we could be in a position at some point where actually you have too many houses. Um, now too many houses, it's likely that we have houses in places that uh, people won't want to, to live. So if you look, I, I always look to Europe as my guidepost or look to Italy as, as a good um, uh, idea of where the future is headed. You have this aging population. The $1 houses? Yeah, so, so very possible that you will have some areas of the, of the US where you, you know, people will no longer want to live or won't be uh, cost effective uh, for them to, to live there. So you could have that phenomena. And perhaps even more uh, importantly, you might have housing structures that are incompatible with the demand, right? So we have these five bedroom, six bedroom homes, but in the future, we're gonna have even more, you know, single, uh, single person households, or you know, one child, two child uh, household. So we might not need those types of uh, structures. So how do we then redesign or redeploy that, that housing as well? So uh, when you think about how does this uh, housing deficit get resolved? Well, it will resolve itself to some extent because of the demographics, but um, it still might not be efficient uh, a use of all the housing stock we have once we get there. There's gonna be a lot of house hacking going on where people are just <laughs> running out to these big mansions room by room. Or you're just living in by yourself, just partying, have, staying in a different bedroom every other week, <laughs> you know, just, well, to, to your point, Chris, like you see, like I, I was joking, but like in Italy, like there is a dollar, like they do offer these incentives to people to move where there's housing supply and no one wants to live. Um, and obviously we're, it feels like we're very far way away from that, from the, U, uh, from in the U S but to your point, like with a declining population, you know, that's like, you I mean, that does seem like where we're heading unless something changes in terms of um, population or, you know, lower construction rates or something like that. Yeah. And so I, I would assume that the construction rates will adjust, right, if that plays out. So it, it, it's really uh, the demographic story, the immigration if birth rates all of a sudden start to pick up, right, then that's a, maybe a different story. But I, I don't, we don't see those trends, right? And even on the immigration front, either from domestic policies, it doesn't look like we're changing anything, but then we may even miss the boat. Other countries have, are experiencing the same type of population um, slowdowns or declines. So there may not be as many uh, immigrants globally that, um, that are available, and they may choose to go to other countries, go to Canada, other other countries may may um, soak up some of that uh, immigration as well. So I, I do see a slowdown as we, certainly as we start to look at 2040 or 2050, right, start to go out 
a ways we in our forecast we have construction coming down as household formations are, are coming down as well so so if you if you guys are predicting that you know as you know demographics population shrinks that there's gonna be an oversupplies of housing or affordable housing for people to actually purchase do, there's still going to be uh, what about the rental market and the apartment market do you do you feel like there's going to like we've seen a rapid amount of rent growth too over the last 24 months and yep. do you guys feel that there's going to be an oversupply in that space too or because of the need for smaller households that's going to be in high demand and there could be higher rent growth on those areas cuz they don't need the three bedroom house they just want a one bedroom apartment is that going to be where you think a lot of there still could be a lot of growth over the next 10 to 20 years? Because that's just where the demand is. Small living, affordable cost instead of buying. It, it, is that something that you guys have kind of forecasted out or looked at, like on the, the smaller apartment scale? Like, is there is that where the major growth is going to be? Yeah, I think so. Because there has to be growth somewhere. Right, right. No. And and the other thing is these demographic trends, right? They play out over decades, right? It's not something that you'll... Yep see very obviously, right? You'll see things slowing perhaps, but you also have the cyclical um, uh, volatility in the economy. So you might not actually recognize it year to year if you're looking at things. You might, you know, next year could very well be an up year when it comes to uh, construction, right? If, if things were to turn around, right? There is still this, uh, this housing uh, deficit that I mentioned. Uh, so I, I think short-term uh, multifamily apartments, uh, clearly there's a lot of demand. So uh, the lack of affordability in home buying does mean that you will have more households renting, looking for for rentals. But even there, at some point, as you mentioned, you do have these double-digit uh, rent increases over the last couple of years, and affordability is being hit hard there, too, as well. So I don't expect to see those um, rent trends continue at this pace, but I do expect to, to see the demand for rentals hold up better than the uh, demand for um, purchases in in this uh, current environment but there will be demand destruction right you have households that are that would have been formed if they could that just won't right because it's it's just too expensive to either buy or rent so i do expect to see that um, that rental market hold up reasonably uh well i don't think we should count on those double digit uh type of uh rent growth rates uh, coming back anytime soon i think that was a unique situation when it comes to the uh, to the pandemic, but going forward, I, I would expect to see that uh, that demand certainly in, in those particular markets where people want to live, uh, continuing uh, for the foreseeable future, versus bu- building those those larger uh, luxury uh, single family homes. The McMansions are over. Yeah, and maybe so. <laughs> we'll we'll see. People really like them, so we'll we'll see. <laughs> Well, I've seen that uh, about the affordable housing that actually, this is kind of a sidebar, but they, in uh, California, they, they kind of outlawed the big mansions in some areas. So now they're doing mansion basements. Yeah, I saw that as well. Because you're not going above <laughs> ground, so you're allowed to do that. And they people have like pools and gyms and like, they're like, all right, well, you won't let us do it above ground, so we'll just do it below ground. And these things are massive. It's like a whole city underground. So I think... No matter what, there, there's always going to be a demand for McMansions as well. The, the amount people will will find a way around any rule is never ceases to amaze me. It's just like they will figure out the way to do it if they want to do it and still stick to the letter of the law. 
I mean, it is pretty cool. Uh, yeah, a basement pool. That just sounds weird. Um, <laughs> uh, all right. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being here. This has been super helpful. Um, you know, I have a whole line of questioning. Uh, maybe you can come back sometime. We'd love to. Ta- I'd love to talk more about not even just housing, but the economic implications of declining population, because I think that is uh, a big, a big juicy topic. We'd love to talk about again, but. Uh, yeah, this was phenomenal, super helpful for, for myself and I'm sure James and for all of our listeners. So thank you so much for being here. If anyone wants to connect with you or follow up, where can they do that? Uh, they can follow up with an email, uh, christian.doritas at moody's.com or I'm on LinkedIn or, um, or Twitter. Uh, Middleway Econ is uh, my Twitter handle. All right. Thanks again, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we got we got to debrief about that. But did your did your lights go out during the middle of that recording? <laughs> it did. <laughs> all of a sudden, it got into the mood lighting. All of a sudden, I was like, "Yeah, oh, here we go." It looks like there's like a spotlight on you right now. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not, <laughs> I'm looking pretty oily right now, actually. But well, it's, uh, you just got a you got like a beam right in your face. <laughs> Um, I mean, yeah, if you're not watching this on YouTube, right in the middle, we, we sort of had a, a little snake bit recording here. We were having a lot of technical issues and we finally resorted to them. And then James's light went out. I was like, what the hell is going on? Why is everything breaking right now? It just auto turned off. I was, and as we were doing the recording, I was like, did anybody notice that? Obviously. <laughs> was I was, I was messaging Kaylin about it. This must be like a full moon or something today. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, that's, uh, that is a first. Anyway, that was awesome. I mean, that was, that was super interesting. Uh, I'm curious what your main takeaways were. My main takeaway was, you know, I've always thought it's real estate is like this super safe investment over a 20 year period. And and it's really actually making me double think, not that, that I, I do believe in real estate and it's always an asset you want to own, but going forward just with the demographics and how we kind of ended it. And I definitely want more information about this because, you know, where you buy and how you buy today can make a big, big difference down the road for you. And, you know, I, I now I'm, I am glad we've transitioned out of a lot of single family into apartments over the last five years because... I, you know, the, the demand's going to be there. Yeah, it's it's super. it was really interesting, just the timeline. Uh, and it kind of makes sense, right? Like, we're probably going to see a pullback over the next year or two. But the 10-year horizon, just based on demographics alone, pretty, pretty encouraging for the housing market as a whole. But beyond that remains sort of like a question, right? Like, once the, de- the millennial demand um, is done and we get to Gen Z, which is a smaller, smaller generation, um, and with uh, declining birth rates and declining immigration rates, um, that could potentially lead to less demand. But like we said, like that doesn't necessarily mean there won't be demand because we're at a shortage right now. So it's it's something I think we need to look at more, right? Like is the is the declining demand just going to reach equilibrium and like then we'll actually be in a better place, or is there a potential that? prices or demand could fall so much that we actually get in the opposite where we have too much housing. Uh, we'll have to look more into that over the next couple of years, but luckily we've got like five to 10 years to figure that out. Yeah. We got some breathing room, you know, I think, and that's why it's so important to really watch these trends over the next, we, we, we just came out of the craziest two year run. And I think the data is all messed up everywhere, to be honest. And it's like it really paying attention over the next 24 months of what's trending is going to be a big, big, uh, have a, make a big difference in how you're going to invest down the road. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us, James. For anyone listening, we appreciate it. Um, just a couple of things. Uh, first and foremost, if you like this show, I think you will because this show is awesome. I love talking to Chris. Share this. We would really appreciate if you shared these episodes with your friends or if you have people who are freaking out about the housing market, want to know what's going on. This is a great episode. Share it with them. Help inform other people in the investing or home buying communities about what's going on in the market. Um, and give us a review if you liked it. And if you have any feedback about this show or thoughts, you can message me. I'm on Instagram at the data deli. James, where can people find you? Uh, best way to get a hold of me is on Instagram at jdaneflips. All right, sweet. James, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time for On the Market. On the Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. And a very special thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show On the Market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but at the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market. It's about the amount of time you have in the market. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that. Or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.